Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 115 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Gavin. That is Mike and Fia. And because you're hearing my voice, that means that uh, I didn't have to do work for this episode. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm still gonna be the one editing it, but yeah, we'll uh, we'll give you that. Sure. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So last episode, we sort of we weren't sure who was going to be the the main host for this episode since I'm currently recording this in California. I'm sort of on vacation. Uh, I say sort of because my in-laws have, uh, you know, had me do some things around the yard, but you know, it is, you know, that's, that's married life for you. It's part of what you get. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so I'm excited to be out here for California or in California. We're here for, uh, another week at the time you all are here in this. Um, but yeah, so because I'm the one talking at the beginning, that means I'm not actually doing the episode. And uh, this is going to be Mike Takes the Wheel, Volume 11? Question mark? Question mark? We'll see. <laughs> uh, we'll see what I, what I do the you, uploading. You, dear listener, already know this because you've seen the episode title, but we do not know. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Uh, I am currently having a mojito, so I'm not looking. Woo! Uh, <laughs> I'm jealous. You've already started. Man. All right, so... We're and I'm three hours behind July you guys. 3rd. Yeah, we're recording this on July 3rd. Yeah. Uh, right now. So what's going to happen is we're going to do this recording. It's going to be a quick one today. And uh, and then I'm going with some friends. And who knows when I wake up. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's America's birthday. And this is a big deal. So Yeah. Sure, sure yeah. is. Or it's almost, almost America's birthday. Get a pregame the birthday. Sure. <laughs> um, it's like a birth week. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so i guess with a, a little bit on what mike and i are up to what are what are you up to fia uh you know i am grinding it is less than uh i think 26 days until i defend my thesis Ooh. and i am stressed <laughs> yeah i bet so we're not going to be celebrating much of the fourth but uh, that's okay. Cause I did, uh, go get to see my family last week. And then nice. I also went to Florida, um, for a quick trip because my boyfriend, Andy had a job interview that oh, hopefully cool. we'll hear back from soon. Nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you guys. thank you. Thank you. Um, but yeah, that's what's been up with me. Nice. So if you want to yeah. Uh, now we'll we'll start getting into the episode. So let's let's keep some house, Fia. Of course, as always, don't forget to rate the show on whatever platform you listen to us, and uh, to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Give us feedback about the show and any future topics you would like to hear on the pod. And if you would like to be a guest on the show, be sure to fill out the guest form, and all of that stuff can be found in the show notes. And Gavin, uh, what is going to be our next episode topic? You know, that's a wonderful question. <laughs> um, I had a feeling, as soon as you started yeah. asking that, I'm like, I know where this is going. No, yeah. as soon as you started, I was like, yeah, you know what? I definitely haven't thought about that yet. Yeah, um, that is okay. So we will, uh, we'll see. We'll, it'll be a surprise to all of us in two weeks' time. That's uh, <laughs> good. Very good. We love a surprise. Absolutely. Um, so in lieu of today in history, because I feel like uh, that's going to be 
most of what Mike is talking about for, you know, his main portion of the episode. Um, so I'm going to do a little uh, paleontology news uh, because there's some neat stuff, some actual good science about uh, Megalodon, everybody's famous or, or favorite uh, giant shark that lived yeah. uh, a few million years ago. There's some good science, not just, you know, people slash being like... still exists now? Slash no. Slash... <laughs> I would like to believe that, though. <laughs> Some people you, would really like to believe that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't understand why people would want to believe that, personally. Uh, because it's evidence of a It's epic. It's, and, like, you're being lied to. Like, it's, it's cool to believe that stuff, even if it's absolute garbage. I it's disagree. like mermaids. Eh, no, I, I disagree. <laughs> Okay. Uh, anyway. Yes. Anyway, so Megalodon, for anybody who uh, might not know what Megalodon is, uh, that is technically Otodus Megalodon. Megalodon is the species name. Um, but it is the giant shark uh, that lived from about 23 million years ago to uh, 3.6 million years ago. So it's not like it's went extinct recently. It's been a few million years. Um, but giant shark, you know reaching like minimum estimates are somewhere around 15 meters or getting close to 50 feet long uh, relative to like a large great white shark today is like 20 to 25. Um, but there's some interesting research that came out recently uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago that suggests that Megalodon was partially warm blooded, which is neat, which is, is not all of that surprising to me um so anybody who doesn't know why that might be news fish in general are considered cold-blooded much like many reptiles are uh they generally don't tend to you know generate their own internal body heat they just sort of get their heat that they use for you know digesting food and stuff like that from their environment with things like lizards you know they sit on like a nice hot rock and absorb heat that way in fish, uh, a lot of the time they are just like adapted to whatever environment, you know, like temperature they live at, um, or they can move up and down through the water column because the you know surface of the water tends to be warmer than the bottom or deeper waters. Um, but with larger organisms, they just retain heat a lot better. You know, it's sort of uh, I think I've heard it called like thermal momentum, where it's like it's harder to cool down, you know, a big object than it is a little object. And so things that are large tend to just be warmer than their environment because they just retain heat a lot better. Um, so the the idea that it would be a higher temperature than its environment isn't super surprising. Plus there are, I think, a couple species of shark that don't generate heat like a mammal does, sort of like you just existing generates heat as as a mammal um but sort of the friction of moving their muscles heats them up hmm. yeah. that's kind of cool that is, yeah I, that is super interesting like friction wow okay yeah and uh granted that's you know the case for some species of living sharks, and then there's also some things like tuna, which are not very closely related to sharks at all. Um, but they have you know most fish meat, like you think of like salmon, is kind of whiter. But if you ever seen like tuna, that's red meat, 
that meat is the, you know, red meat versus white meat is sort of energetically different and red meat Mm -hmm. tends to be, uh, you know, uh, what generates heat. So even some, uh, other fish are, are known to at least partially do it. Um, but based on some different isotope things, uh, it found mostly in teeth of, uh, Megalodon because, you know, with sharks, they don't really have true bones per se. It's all cartilage. Yeah. Um, but they suggest that uh, Megalodon had an overall body temperature of about 27 degrees Celsius, which is uh, mm. not blazing hot by any means. Let me do a quick conversion uh, to, to, you know, freedom units here because it's 4th of July. It's like 90, 100-ish? Uh, no, so that'd be, like, that'd be 37. Wait. Oh, yeah, sorry. Hmm. Yeah, so 27 is about 80. Cool. So, like, like I said, not, you know, as warm as, like, a, a mammal, per se. Um, but you that's what you would definitely expect for, like, a, a large predator, because it's mostly thought that uh, Megalodon hunted whales, for the most part. And to be that active, swimming around, uh, you would need kind of a higher energy requirement than you would think of for, like, a normal fish. So, uh yeah, just some more more neat actual science about Megalodon uh, keeps coming out, and uh, it makes me happy. Can you say the official name of Megalodon again, like the scientific name? Yeah, so it's it's gone back and forth for a long time. A lot of times you would just often see it uh, abbreviated like the letter C period Megalodon. Mm-hmm. Um, because it was sort of debated whether it was in the genus uh, Carcarius, which I think is the same genus as Great White Sharks, or Carcaracles, which is a, a different genus. Uh, however, that has since, you know, not been favored in the last probably like five years or so. But the, the genus is Ototus, um, which is sort of the main genus for what are called megatoothed sharks, which are ex- exactly what they sound like. There are, there are other really large sharks that aren't quite megalodon size, but get quite big. Ototus sounds like the name of the guy that's riding in the passenger seat when you need to get your car towed. Like, <laughs> who's driving the vehicle, and then Ototus is, like, his backup. That's I love there it. With him. It's his buddy. That, uh. that was that was the whole reason why I needed you to repeat the name of that there, because it had been sticking in my head the whole time. <laughs> you know, these, these are the hard-hitting uh, points that, yes. we have, that we have on, like, the, on this podcast here. If I'm not on the show for stuff like this, I'm not sure why I'm on the show. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, but, yeah. You're here because you're a good buddy. Yeah, of course. All three of us are good buddies. And speaking of good buddies, uh, good buddy Fia, I believe you've got some uh, Swamp Corner news for us. I do, I do. So today I have a nice little shrimpy for you. It's the white shrimp, Peneus sativarius. Um, it has a whole bunch of common names. I'll name a few of my favorite. Uh, the Atlantic white shrimp, uh, Daytona shrimp, Ooh. southern shrimp, uh, blue-tailed shrimp, but there's also green-tailed shrimp, so that's confusing. Uh, so yeah, it's got a whole bunch of names, but most commonly white shrimp. Uh, it's a species of prawn found in the Atlantic coast of North America and in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, it was one of the earliest uh, shrimp fisheries in the United States, though I'm not really sure if they're still doing that anymore. Uh, don't quote me on that. 
But these white shrimp, they're omnivores. They eat seagrass and detritus. Uh, they are also a great food source to many other fish that rely on them that are more commercially valuable shrimp, fish like the red drum. And then also uh, sea turtles will eat these shrimp. And they have a weird uh, spawning pattern. They kind of will breed in the water when it's warm. So when the water is increasing in to warmer temperatures in the spring and then when um, it's kind of warm and kind of declining in the fall. And then during the spring, the, they'll, so they'll breed in the estuaries kind of up towards where like the coastal areas. But then mm-hmm. in the spring, when there's a lot of rain, it flushes all the shrimp out into the ocean. And then um, in the eastern part of the United States, because these um, shrimp are uh, cold-blooded or ectothermic, uh, they need warm water to survive. And so in the eastern United States, they'll migrate down towards the south to warmer waters. Hmm. Yeah. I might be putting you a little on the spot here. What is the difference between a shrimp and a prawn? Yeah, you said that they're I... technically prawns, not shrimp, right? And it, is there okay? Is there a difference? Number one, I don't know. <laughs> okay. uh, I I think it might have to do with a size class thing, but okay. I don't know that there's actually a technical difference. Okay, but I I really I'm not sure. Yeah, because especially like. Being from the north, I know like yeah. shrimp is obviously a much bigger thing down in Louisiana. Um, but I, I hear a lot of people like from the south call them prawns much more often than I do like people in the north. And I'm like, is it like an actual like difference or is it just like a local thing? I, I don't know. Okay, so I'm seeing here that I think it's a uh, like family branch off. Or like okay. some sort of file. I want to say yes, that they're different, but within the same like decapod crustacean uh, order. Gotcha. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Sorry to not give you a clear answer. I was not. Uh, I don't know shrimps like that. <laughs> That's okay. But anyway, Mike, what do we have today? Yeah. So uh, today for Mike Takes the Wheel, um, I was telling these guys that this will probably be um, um, a reasonably quick episode even for me. Um, There is, this is somebody that I was um, uh, already kind of broadly aware of. And then um, the New York Times has this series of, um, on people, I'm looking for what it's called, um, Overlooked, where just kind of people, the idea is, is that, you know, we've talked about before on this podcast and, you know, just existing on this planet uh white dudes tend to kind of dominate um headlines as well as obituaries and they've got this cool series here um where they kind of look at people that don't fit into the white dude model and kind of write up if not necessarily obituaries and kind of mini biographies of people um that you know we're not white dudes that kind of deserve um, more notice and so the new york times wrote up this woman um a couple of years ago and i'm also going to be quoting quite a bit from her wikipedia page um, but Gavin and Fia, you might be able to answer this too, but Gavin um, has a better shot here. Um, do you know what a fascination of mine has been over like the last three or four years? I mean, I feel like you've had a lot of them, buddy. 
Yeah. I several of them, but there, you, this is something that we have talked before about. Even on the podcast, we have talked before about this. So if either one of you can guess the fast ba- I'm thinking about. Is it baseball? It is not baseball, although great guess. Um, the outdoors. Okay, so you are brought- The mountains? The mountains? Hiking? Uh, we are getting closer, yes. The it is app- very much related to this. The Appalachians? So, the Appalachian Trail um, is something that I've been kind of fascinated with for the last four years. Or, um, uh, uh, being that I kind of live there now, I'd be remiss if I didn't actually pronounce that Appalachians. Uh, I believe Ooh. that is how the locals pronounce it. it well, the uh, the locals can pronounce it however they want. Uh, I can barely <laughs> spell Appalachian Trail. Um, I'm certainly not going to be able to pronounce it um, Appalachian for the duration of um, uh, for the duration of this um, uh, episode. So the sure. um, the Appalachian Trail, um, for those of you that don't know, it's a roughly two thousand, a little over two thousand mile hiking trail that goes from Georgia to Maine in the United States. Um, and it was conceived in like the 1920s or so. Um, and, you know, when it was first put together, it was, you know, it wasn't a whole lot of anything. There are a number of books um, about kind of the creation of the Appalachian Trail. If anybody here knows anything about long distance hiking now, there are videos and apps on your phone and trails are oftentimes pretty well maintained. And you have GPS, like it is a kind of well-defined thing to do now. And many of kind of the famous people in long distance hiking are still alive. Um, and in many cases, like quite young um, uh, and still alive. Um, but what I want to talk about today is the first woman to ever do what's called through hiking the Appalachian Trail, which means this woman walked from Georgia or to Maine. Um, I believe that's the way she did it from Georgia to Maine. Um, without taking any um, stops. We are going to be wow. talking today about a woman who was born, um, Emma Rowena uh, Caldwell. Um, she married and became Emma Gatewood, and she is best known as Grandma Gatewood. Um, and so I'd just like to quickly uh, give you a biography of, uh, of Grandma Gatewood. Um, so she was born to a family of 15 children in Ohio. Oh, geez. <laughs> um, yeah, she was born in 1887. Uh, her father had his leg amputated in the Civil War. Um, she uh, Her education ended when she was in eighth grade, but she enjoyed uh, reading um, encyclopedias and Greek classics, it says here. And she kind of oh. teach herself about you know, wildlife and plants. Um, That's nice. As best she could. Yeah. Um, and then 1907, at the age of 19, she married a 27-year-old uh, um, teacher named uh, Perry Clayton Gatewood, and that's where the name Gatewood comes from. And with Gatewood, uh, let's play a game here. How many children do you think that uh, that Perry and Emma Gatewood had? So I want to say less than from, 15. Yeah, so she was one of 15. I'm yeah. going to say 12. So we have a guess of 12, and Fia? Uh, 14. Gavin, you were closer. She ends up with 11 children. Okay. Dang. I know it's not quite 15, but still. That's a lot. 11 children. Yeah. I mean, That's a lot. I, again, for somebody that, uh, that wants nothing to do with having uh, children and also like would not be responsible for the uh, birthing of said children, that still sounds just nuts to me. 11 yeah. 11 children. Um, and... Pretty soon after, pretty much immediately after um, uh, the two were married, she began having children. Um, 
she was uh, she was kind of put to work um, in uh, building fences and mixing cement in addition to regular household duties. And then um, I probably should have put this at the beginning here, but content warning for um, brief discussion of domestic violence. Um, but this husband was well regarded in the community, um, a smart man. He was a teacher. Um, within months after the wedding, though, he would begin to beat his wife. And this was something that continued for the duration of the marriage. Oh. Um, yes, it was, um, it was something that was horrible, and she endured it from 1907 until 1924 when he was convicted of manslaughter after killing a man in an argument. Oh, jeez. Wow. Now, you would think, all right, that'd be the end of it. Like, we can just, like, this man goes away for a little while. That's uh, not that how point, the world works. Nope. He was ordered to pay restitution to the widow of the victim, but his prison sentence was suspended because he had nine children and a farm to take care of. Oh, oh come on. Yes. And, and what, so uh, Allison, what, year, what year was that? 1924? This is 1924 is when, uh, is when he was convicted of manslaughter. Um, and, you know, Emma, there were, you know, she kept a journal, um, and had recounted later in her life about being beaten nearly to death, um, on several occasions. And when, when this would happen, when he would get violent, if it were possible, she would often run into the woods and that's where she was able to find some peace and solitude. And I don't mean to romanticize, um, you know, any part of this that is horrific and awful, but you can kind of see the genesis of why somebody may want to, uh, you know, take a 2,000 mile walk in the woods, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 1939, after another fight, um, the, uh, uh, the man there, uh, uh, Perry, had his wife, uh, tried to have his wife arrested and jailed. Um, but after seeing her with, quote, a broken teeth and a cracked rib, the town mayor took her in and found her a job. She was able to file for divorce in 1940, and in 1941, she testified against her husband in a hearing that resulted in the divorce being granted. Um, and this is 1940, a woman filing for a divorce. Right. Uh, again, just imagine how bad things had to have gotten in order for that to be granted. Um, yeah. You know, fortunately, you know, fortunately today, you can just file for a divorce, and like, it's not fun, but you can just do it. Yeah. Um, no one's asking sense. questions. Yeah, right. Versus in uh, well, it depends on what state you live in. Actually, it Uh, it does it varies by state, and we have some international listeners, and I won't pretend to know all the laws. I'm going to make a blanket statement saying it's at the very least probably not harder to get a divorce as it will be. Yeah. Oh yes. Yes. um, Now than than back then, Um, there was um, some issues with uh, three of her children at the time of the divorce were um, were still minors. Um, and there was, you know, contention about who the kids would live with. Eventually, she was able to um, um, to get custody. And by 1951, all the children were out uh, on her own. And so this kind of brings us to, you know, why, why she became famous. Um, in the early 50s, she was reading a, a copy of National Geographic magazine that was kind of talking about the Appalachian Trail. And there was, you know, descriptions and pictures in it. And it just it made it sound like something that, you know, anyone could do. Um, similarly to part of the reason why I kind of fell in love with the Appalachian Trail, because it seemed like anyone could do it. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, I was not able to um, to actually go out and give it a shot. Um, I didn't even start it. But Grandma Gatewood did. Um, in 1954, at the age of 66, she started up in Maine at Mount Katahdin, which is the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. And she started hiking south. 
A few days later, she got lost, broke her glasses, and ran out of food. Oh, the geez. rangers who found her convinced her to return home. But she didn't tell anybody about her failure. The following year, when she was 67 years old, Haywood wow. told her grown children that she, I'm going to be quoting pretty heavily from the Wikipedia article on here, although I have been doing that you know, from, uh, for most of this so far. Okay. She told, at the age of 67, she told her grown children she was going to take a walk. They did not ask where or for how long. <laughs> they just knew she was resilient and would take care of herself. This time she started earlier in the year, and she started in Georgia, beginning on May 3rd and ending 146 days later on September 25th at Mount Katahdin. Wow. At the top of Baxter Peak, she signed the register, sang the first verse of the song, America the Beautiful, and spoke out loud, I did it. I said I'd do it, and I've done it. Um, and this is remarkable on so many, uh, for so many reasons. Um, number, like, number one, just how old she was. And you know, yeah. I don't think there's anybody in the world that would accuse me of ageism um, by saying when you are in your late 60s, to do a 2,000-mile hike in the woods is in just – it is incredibly difficult. It's difficult for somebody in their 20s yeah. to be able to pull that off. In your 60s, especially somebody who, you know, had been you know, routinely beaten um, throughout the course of her life, it is incredible. It gets more incredible, however, when you find out that even by the standards of the time, she did not have anywhere near the proper equipment to be able to complete this hike. Uh, uh, because the uh, the National Geographic article had given her the impression that it was easy and it would be no problem right, with cabins yeah. all along the way, she took little in the way of outdoor gear. No tent, no sleeping bag, just a shower <laughs> curtain to keep the rain off. Oh, my God. She wore some uh, some shoes that, well, I'm not 100% sure, were just not fit for that kind of um, right. distance um, backpacking. And she carried a uh, small notebook, some clothes she found, and food in a homemade denim bag slung over her shoulder. When she couldn't find a shelter, she slept on piles of leaves. On cold nights, she heated large flat stones and used um, as a warm bed. When she ran out of food, she ate berries and other edible plants she recognized. Um, that is insane. Wow. It's, it is nuts. Um, as she was hiking, local newspapers kind of like you know, began picking up the start, like Forrest Gump style almost. Oh, like, yeah. This crazy. Like, started picking it up. Um, and so she, um, in June, she um, spoke with, um, when she was in Virginia, in an article for the Roanoke Times. She did another when she was in Maryland, um, and when she was in Connecticut as well. Um, and so this helped her out a little bit because her name was out there, and people would go um, and kind of surprise her with what's been dubbed trail magic. Um, which is where, you know, kind strangers go and set up, um, you know, things for hikers to find generally kind of food, water, things of that sort. Yeah. Um, right. Which has become reasonably common on the Appalachian Trail is my understanding, um, particularly around like the starting season for the first um, couple hundred miles or so. But again, this is with the advent of the Internet. And this is, uh, you know, years and years later of the trail gaining popularity. Um, this is the 19. 50s that she is um that she is doing all this in um she did this to well to quote her here before i get to that after the hike sports illustrated ran a follow-up article discussing her experiences on the trail she was quoted as saying that based on the national geographics articles rosy descriptions she thought it would be a nice lark it wasn't she <laughs> this is no trail it's a nightmare 
for some fool reason, they always lead you right up over the biggest rock on top of the biggest mountain they can find. Um, yeah. Which is uh, uh, a hell of a way to describe um, something that you just spent a whole bunch of time doing. Yeah. Um, they called her a jovial little grandmother um, in the Baltimore Sun um, who conquered the, um, the AT. She had been invited on a couple different um, news and television shows at that point. And you would think when somebody quotes something, you know, I'm YouTube here. My two good friends both know me. I'm rather mm -hmm. stubborn and hard-headed. And if I'm going to start something, what? I'm going to try my damnedest to finish it. Yeah, uh-huh. I know. I know. Dear listener, shocked as you might be. <laughs> um, but, like, if I do something and then I finish it, and at the end I give a quote saying it was a nightmare, it was awful, I might not do it again. <laughs> oh no grandma gatewood through hiked the appalachian trail again in what? 1957 yep wow apparently the trail was in better condition um that year some local clubs had taken to cleaning up um uh the trail i'm sure uh in no small part because of the publicity that she um she gained for it um she um she wound up hiking this thing in oregon um called the oregon trail which is another 2,000 miles and then she became, in 1964, the first person to hike the Appalachian Trail three times at the age of wow. 76. Oh, wow. my God. Um, this time she did what's called section hiking, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like. Instead of walking literally from start to finish, um, which is what she did the first two times, that's called through hiking. She did it in sections. Um, I don't have a whole lot of details here on the actual, on how she broke it up, but she was able to hike it. Um, in sections that time at 76 years old. Um, when she was wow. in her early 80s, she spent, you know, 10 or more hours a day cleaning and marking a 30-mile hiking trail in Ohio. Um, you know, into her 80s, she was, you know, this, uh, this dedicated to it. Um, she, was a, uh, she was a founding member of the Roanoke Appalachian Club. Um, and eventually, at age 85, she, uh, she died of a heart attack. She had one surviving sister, 66 living descendants, including 11 children, 24 grandchildren, 30 great-grandchildren, and one great-great-grandchild. Wow. Um, yes. There is, um, and I don't have um, uh, um, the details in front of me here, but I believe every year, um, I believe it's that 30-mile stretch of trail. If not there, then it could be somewhere else. But every year, there are a number of people um, that get together, um, put on the same gear that Grandma Gatewood had when, um, when she started hiking. Um, yes, here we go. Um, every January 1967, she leads a six-mile walk um, in Ohio. For her last hike in 1973, more than 25 hikers joined her. The hike has become even more popular over the years. In 2013, more than 4,000 people joined in, often wearing the, uh, um, the same wildly wildly inadequate um uh, outfit that she wore to hike that to kind of you know Jeez. remember her and remember what she was able to go through by the end of her life she had walked more than fourteen thousand miles or the equivalent of more than halfway around the earth wow. um, says here. yes and this is again somebody who you know did not begin her hiking until 1955 when she was in her 60s um wow just this is it is the kind of woman that you just want to like sit down with over uh you know over some lunch 
and just yeah. have her tell you stories the same way you know if you've ever met like a you know an old world war ii veteran you just want them to tell you stories this is a uh this is a woman that deserves to be um certainly remembered particularly by anybody who is um an outdoorsy or hiking type um and so grandma gatewood is the uh is the well-deserved subject of this episode of uh, of mike takes the wheel Awesome. Did they ever say why she went back after she said it was so horrible? Um, so there is a book um, about this called Grandma Gatewood's Walk. I do not have it. Um, I want to make sure I get the um, the name and the authors correct. Um, but um, so I don't have that information right here. Um, mm-hmm. But it, I would imagine. I would imagine the fact that it was cleaned up a little better, the fact that she may not have had much else to do at this point. Yeah. Um, yes, right. Grandma Gatewood's Walk, the inspiring story of the woman who saved the Appalachian Trail uh, by Ben oh. Montgomery. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I don't know why. If you want to know more, um, it is um, definitely something that um, you can check out. As I'm Googling it right now, it looks like Google Books has like a full version of this question mark. Oh, cool. So you can just read it for free just by Googling uh, Grandma Gatewood's Walk. Um, it came out in 2014, and uh, this is definitely at some point something I'd like to um, uh, learn more about. Um, just the, really cool, an, an incredible woman, and uh, again, kind of fitting in the theme of trying to highlight people from uh, marginalized backgrounds. And uh, Grandma Gatewood is certainly uh, one of those people. That's yeah, awesome. absolutely. All right. That is all I have here today. Um, uh, Gavin, although I do have, yeah. yeah, I do have a quick thing. Just since you mentioned uh, National Geographic so much, what do you got? Uh, so something ac- actually happened this week as well um, that uh, puts National Geographic in not the best light. Oh no! Uh, they laid off all of their staff writers. Oh no! So uh, National Geographic, if you weren't aware, is owned by Disney. Mm-hmm. And Disney in general has had a bunch of layoffs, uh, you know, recently. And so currently National Geographic has no staff writers and all of their articles are now going to be written by freelancers, um, mm. as well as they've laid off a, a good number of their editors uh, to the point where they only have two full-time text editors. This and then a, like a problem. Yeah. And I mean, just in general, anytime a company lays off, you know, regular paid salary workers in favor of freelancers is not great. Right. Um, And it's a real shame considering that, you know, in in my opinion, one of the best like um, paleontology science communicators who's still doing like the, you know, traditional media sort of thing instead of like podcasts and things um, is is named Michael Greshko. And he was a staff writer for national geographic and is now currently unemployed. Um, Mm. so yeah, it's, it's just a bummer, uh, especially, you know, to me personally, just because like there was a a point in time right around when we started this podcast, where becoming like a staff writer for something to the effect of national geographic or science magazine was, was my goal. And honestly, was one of the goals of starting this podcast was to help me, you know, get better at science communication. Um, so yeah, that's. I just wanted to to point that out since you know this was a, a National Geographic heavy episode, but uh, yeah, just a just a real bummer. Yeah, that is. Uh, 
Yeah, that was um, well. I tried to get the bummer stuff out of the way at the beginning of the story. I know. I and I wish and... that we were ending on something. I wish that I had you know thought to mention this before we got into the main body of the episode. But you know that, that still doesn't take away what uh what uh was it Grandma Gatewood? Grandma Gatewood. Yes. Yeah. What what she you know did and and you know I can't wait to at, at some point I'm, I'm positive I will not do the whole thing. Um, but I think it'd be really neat now that I know about it to go to like that section yeah. where, where people do the, the, you know, grandma Absolutely. Gatewood walk. Um, right. that would be, that'd be really neat. So, um, but yeah, and especially since if, if the book is just available on Google books, I'll definitely have to check that out at some point. That came from Googling while I was just like, while we were talking here. So don't quote me on that, but like, it looked like it existed. Yeah. I'll, so. I'll look into it. And if it does, there'll be a link in the show notes. Wonderful. Cool. But yeah, thank you all so much for listening to episode 115 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. I have been Gavin, that has been Mike and Fia, and we will see you all in two weeks. Take care, everybody, and uh, happy 4th of July to those who celebrate. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Mike Bryson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you. 